I wrote a book about my life named Moguldom. You can get more information about this book at moguldombook.com. I talk about acquiring a knowledge of self, self-determination, and building a business over 10 years. There are some gems in this book that you don't want to miss. One way to support the Go movement in this podcast is to go to moguldombook.com, buy the book on pre-sale to support the Go movement. Let's go. You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. This is part two of the interview. Let's go. You went to Emory for B-School, extremely selective B-School. Do you think because of some of these kind of market forces that we're talking about and and structural issues uh, that B-School you would short B-School for people who want to be successful, who want to be a CEO or, or do great things. Uh, would you be short or long business degrees, net-net? B-School degrees, net-net? Man, that's a tough one for me. <laughs> you guys like, tough man, questions, brother. How do you unpack <laughs> I would tell you why it's tough for me because, yeah. um, no, I mean, at the end of the day, no, you don't need to have an MBA. Sean is a super, super bright guy, can run circles around a lot of people I know that do have MBAs. And he don't need he doesn't need one. Um, I may argue argue I may not have needed one, but I'll tell you what I got out of it. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're considering MBAs, usually what you're trying to do is find upward mobility in the organization you're in, or an opportunity to find a career change. That's usually two reasons why people get MBA. Um, and for myself, it was interesting. I was one of the few people in my cohort that really wasn't there for either of the two. Um, I was at a great place in Apple, so I was already getting upper mobility, but I kind of was already thinking about doing a startup, uh, doing my own thing, and I think that's what I was there for. It was just a really, you know, I had an engineering degree, so I didn't take certain business, you know, classes, and so, like, finance was, like, nothing I took. Accounting, I didn't take accounting. So I was there to really expand my kind of, like, knowledge base. So now when I'm sitting, Sean and I looking at our numbers, like, I, it doesn't, I know numbers, but I know numbers in a way that it makes sense for, you know, running a business where I wouldn't have otherwise. Now, of course, I could have learned a lot of that, too, on the Internet, taking my own individual uh, time to learn it that way. But for me, being in that, that, you know, education setting um, was good. And quite frankly, there's a lot of people in my cohort that are like, it was a network building thing for me, too. Like, like one of our advisors, his name is Andrew McCaskill, another one of your Morehouse brothers. <laughs> uh, Andrew is a senior vice president of uh, Nielsen and focus on multicultural marketing. So he and I used to sit in the back of the class talking about multicultural marketing and like how these platforms need to be built. So a lot of my thinking that has spawned Sean and I building Culture Genesis started back there. So, and through, you know, Andrew, who's now an advisor for our startup. So I feel like those relationships, the networking, those things are kind of something that's kind of hard to go duplicate unless you go into, like, especially a great program with really smart people, which is where, you know, Emory provided me. So I would say just, once again, education, I think it's an intimate thing. It depends on what you personally need. But I would tell anyone that said to me, like, do I have to have one? The answer is an emphatic no. Um, but who, depending on who you are as a person, it may be a great experience for you, but it's expensive, right? So like I said, I got mine paid for, right? So, um, if you can find a way to get it paid for the black consortium is a great opportunity to go through some of these great programs and get it paid for. 
I'm all for it. But if you have to spend out a lot of money and it may not be worth the investment. As a founder for the audience, what mistake have you made that could be helpful uh, uh, with the audience in terms of, hey, I have this business idea. I want to, you know, put together a team, possibly raise money, develop the product. What What's the biggest mistake you could share uh, with the audience that you kind of learn from? I started laughing at you this question because, you know, I probably got, you know, I got like 50 million yeah, mistakes yeah, I've made. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I, you know, my father recently passed. One thing he always told me, and it's very, very important to the startup world and just business in general is that, you know, like work hard and never give up. It's just that simple. You know, you have to have that kind of mentality to be to to make it, you know, in general. Um, so that's one thing you have to have your mind really made up and be fully passionate. But that doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. So let's I think my biggest mistake. Man, um, because I'm doing this venture now with Sean, and I know what it's like to have a really good partner, I can honestly tell you probably my biggest mistakes have been not partnering with the right people. Because when you partner with the right person, you offset each other, right? Yeah. You know, and if you're doing it solo, then there's other mistakes you can make, right? Yeah. Um, and I honestly would not recommend doing a startup solo, quite yeah. frankly. I would say if you can't convince someone to get come alongside you to go work on what you think is big enough, then it may not be big enough. If yeah. You can't convince somebody to work alongside you. That's that's the first. Uh, second, you got to find the right person, and that person offsets you. Like you won't necessarily have to always think exactly the like. Uh, you want someone who compliments, uh, compliments you versus you. thinking, yeah, you know, yeah, same thing. Yeah. yeah, where you might be anxious in this way, that person's calm in that way, or vice versa. You know, there's just little things that it takes to find success. Um, that I think a very good business partner is kind of a good solve for. Um, and I think being patient and um, humble, uh, and really putting a lot of focus on the. When I was getting my MBA, they talked about EQ all the time, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence. And when you're going through school, you hear things and you kind of see it, and you see how it works out in, in the working for corporate America. But I think it's actually even more important in a startup environment because you're trying to build a team, a culture, and trying to motivate people. And I think it was just recently I read this wonderful article. They said the best uh, founders are all the biggest cheerleaders to their team. They're always cheering them on. They're always bringing that positive energy to, like to the coach. team. Yeah, you gotta be, to a yeah. coach. Some of the best coaches, you know, always speaking life into you, right? Just saying, yeah, you can do this. You know, they push you, but they also speak life into you. And the reverse of that is your coaches giving you, you're talking about speaking life, uh, a bad entrepreneur or CEO is speaking death into the, the organ, organization. Yes. Yeah. And, and getting in the way of themselves and the organization. Sometimes I think people, when I say humble, I think sometimes people get into the startup game, especially now. Like you are, you're a part of the, the a great thing and also could be a problem sometimes. Why? Because this is a nice podcast. Some people come to this and they want to, you know, promote themselves. Right? Yeah. And it becomes more about them than, than what they're building. And yeah. And it's like, well, what are you really doing? And there's, unfortunately, more and more of that happening where you're seeing people just really kind of 
Like, what is this for? Kind of you, PR. Yeah, kind of, it's, it's like, super, my business is PR. PR you're you're yeah. seeing kind of a lot of fluff I'm in not, the market. I'm not here to point, na- point, point fingers and name names, but there's just more and more of that happening. And it's, yeah. to me, it's, you know, people get in, excited about the fact that they're inspiring other people, right? And it starts to become about that and nothing else. Like, you got to build a successful business. Where's the product? Where are the profits? Where are the cash? Where are the downloads? Where are the metrics? You know, do you have any, do you have a viewpoint about entrepreneurs understanding? Because, you know, there's a lot of younger folks out there where you missed the 2000.com uh, crash. You weren't around to see how many people got hurt and how the financial conditions in the United States can tighten up really quick. Uh, and in 2008, some people, they weren't really active in entrepreneurship or in tech. Uh, and they didn't really have kind of that experience of living through a boom and bust cycle in the, the, the crash of 2008, 2009. Um, you know, we're more than 10 years into this bull market, this economic cycle. You talked about, you're seeing stuff out there where people... There's more fluff, more talk of raising money, more PR stuff than cash, profits, app downloads, product development. Where are we at, you think, in the economic cycle? I'll say this. I'll add one more thing to the preface of the question is that, you know, the startup game is kind of like the rap game. (laughs) You know, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of people out here yeah. talking about they got spins and you know on their records and yeah. they got cash in their pocket and they they faking it till they make it, right? I mean, yeah. you to know, pick- there's a there's a lot of that in yeah. the rap game and also in the tech game. And to be honest, it's what's so funny is you know it's it knows no color bounds, right? Sometimes yeah. we looking at you look at your girl uh, that did the Theranos. What was it? Theranos. Theranos. You know she was out yeah. there lying her butt off about psychopath, right? At least straight, straight looks like line. a psychopath. You to know, me. straight lying about what she thought she <laughs> was, was building and had nothing, zero. Yeah. Uh, Juicero, you know, this is, there's a lot yeah. of these major, a lot of, major uh, fraud out there. Yeah, a lot of fraud. A lot of and easy easy money, easy money, and you get the fraud and hustlers, yeah. right? And so. I don't see that changing ever. I think that's a part of the game. I think that's been it's been that way from maybe that way from now to the end of time. And so I don't want to necessarily, you know, marry that to what the market is, right? So, but where the market is, interesting enough, I think there's still a lot of opportunity. It's still great. whether this thing busts or not, there's going to be opportunities. Yep. Do you think it matters for entrepreneurs to if they didn't live through? the prior boom and bust cycles where stuff starts to tighten up and investors not talking to anybody, meaning that, you know, stuff is really blowing up in the economy. Does an entrepreneur need to appreciate the cycle that they're in or, Hey, you know, build something amazing. It does not matter what part of the cycle you're in, because let let me just add to that, that some entrepreneur, some venture capitalists in prior cycles, they said, look, this market looks very frothy. This, you know, the type of multiples we're seeing, they sent a deck 
uh, this is one of the prestigious VC firms at, at a point. They, they sent a deck around that spooked a lot of people. They said, raise your next round now. We think this stuff is about to start tighten up and blow up. Um, and they're educating the entrepreneurs that, hey, because of the macro environment, possibly a pending recession, this stuff is going to blow up based on what we've seen over the last 30 years. This stuff always blows up. Go ahead and start being lean, tighten up now, possibly pull back on some of your hiring or go, move a little slower because of the macro environment. Do you think that that's a bad way to look at things generally? So I told, I mentioned I went through Y Combinator and one of the kind of uh, the mantras there is uh, build something that people want. And when you're doing that, there's inherent value. And when there's an inherent value, it will always live through the test of time, whether it's in a good market or a bad market, right? Now, the reality is if you're in a bad market and you can't raise money, you got to be at a place where are you, have you raised enough money to get through that period of time is a real question. And so every good CEO and, and co-founders should be thinking about that. And uh, the reality is, you know, I think Sean and I have run our company lean, right? We, we run lean. I think because of our experiences prior to this have told us to always be lean. So you, and I think if, you're, I, if you're leaned up, as you're talking to, it doesn't matter. Right. I'm already lean. There's right. nothing to optimize. I'm right. running this business tight. Right. Yeah. So I think that's the key to any entrepreneur. I would tell them, even if you got, I mean, a lot of the major, major startups, you start to look, they've raised a lot of money and not burning any of the cash. Like the guys here in LA, Goat, I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's an e-commerce platform. These guys are killing it. But they haven't been burning any of their cash, but they've, they've raised significant amounts. They stay yeah. lean. And I think that is kind of the name of the game for the most part because it brings shareholder value. That makes, you know, of course, with, with investors, they always want to get into something that they can't, right? Yeah. So the moment you do these things, they're actually all great things just to do in general practice, no matter what the economy is, because you want investors to want to feel like they got to fight to give you money, not the other way around. Yeah, that sounds like a, a slogan for entrepreneurs where Fat Joe may say, lean back, lean back, but get leaned up, yeah, yeah, get lean leaned up. up. You know, you, you're not going to go wrong uh, running your business uh, lean. And I'll say that's the reason why you just have to stay humble, though, right? Yeah. Because what happens is you attract capital, you see that money, you get your eyes get big, and you're like, oh, I can do this, or I can do that. You know, that's why humility and, pract and just being practica practical are very, very important to this game. If the cycle does turn, which I believe within the next 12 months, if the cycle does turn in an aggressive way, you know, why we may want to appreciate economic cycles a little bit more. These, you know, the, the old saying from our grandparents and parents are like, hey, when white folks catch a cold, you're catching the Pneumonia. flu. White <laughs> folks catch a cold. You're catching Zika. <laughs> I say pneumonia. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel you. I've heard so, it. So if folks start to get laid off in, in the uh, media industry, of course, we saw about 2,500 over the past uh, 60 days, BuzzFeed and some, some others, uh, that when these layoffs start and the, the investors start tightening up, you're not raising your next round. There's a general way to look at this where maybe that's not as important, but possibly as a black entrepreneur and you have a business, it may take 
three years to get profitable, five years to get profitable, it's most likely going to be harder in this environment if, if, if there's an economic downturn for you to get your capital. So you may want to just be kind of talk to people who've been around through economic cycles, very smart people like yourself about the, the risk and kind of, you know, how can you get leaned up and, and kind of prepare yourself no matter where this thing goes? Yeah, I think you always want to be looking at your your OPEX and just kind of thinking about where is there opportunity for me to cut back on this or that. Um, that's one thing. And then the second thing, the, the second thing is, um, you know, you want to really consider that you want to be fundraising always. That's another secret that a lot of people don't talk about, which means, you know, just because you raised around, closed around, doesn't mean that you're not staying in contact with investors. They should always know where you are, what you're doing, because that keeps you well suited for additional capital if needed, right? And yeah. I think that's one of the ways that I didn't realize that until I got into YC and started talking to these big time. You know, one of the best things about like a YC is that they put you in a room and you start to get other CEOs, the other startups who actually have made it, right? You know, the Instacarts, the Airbnbs, and all these guys are coming through. And they start sharing what they've done and you start to realize like, wow, okay, there's a lot more to this than I know. And I think that's the biggest part that keeps us out of the game sometimes is who's coaching us, who's telling us these little secrets that we otherwise wouldn't know, right? Yeah. And that is the biggest challenge, really, that and the capital. Or I think the two things that are hardest for black entrepreneurs to get that coaching and, of course, the capital to go along with it so you can execute. Back to running lean and de-risking the business, regardless of the macro environment. I want to build something special uh, that's going to work in a recession, bear market, bull market, I don't care. But can you talk to one way to de-risk your business as an entrepreneur is if you do have an investor or investors who back you, who support you, who risk their own capital, you have to be honest with the investor and investors about the good and the bad if you lose a big client putting the business at risk if you're raising capital and you're not seeing traction and you know you have trouble with the product there's cost overruns if things start to tighten up for you or in the macro environment you may desperately need to go back to those investors. And so if you're not providing timely, honest reports about your wins and your losses, oftentimes they hear stuff, they read stuff. And so you're going to blow up future support you may need. You may be desperate for that capital and it's going to be easier, easier for you to get capital from people you're already linked to, people who've already supported you, obviously. But... What I see with some entrepreneurs is that they're not honest with the investors. They don't give the investor the good and the bad. But the thing is, good investors, if they are in your cap table, they know bad stuff is going wrong. You're not fooling them. Can you talk about that? Wow, that's a lot to say right there. Um, <laughs> so I think 
there's a couple of things. So if I'm talking, we're talking right now to other entrepreneurs who are going through this. I would, I would say, as you hear my voice, to tell you that, listen, you're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through good times. But the key is to be real with yourself first. See, oftentimes I think entrepreneurs have a way of like fooling ourselves first. It's like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to make it like this is this is going to work. And that's not always true. And the best way to be honest with yourself is to talk, to your point, to your investors because they are the ones that took the risk on you. They're the ones that should have some understanding of your business. And that can actually help you. You know, one thing, once again, I hate to keep going back to YC, but one thing they always talk, tell us is that the moment they stop hearing from an, uh, a, a portfolio company, that means they're failing and they don't want to talk. And that means they're just waiting to hear them die. Right. About them dying. And you don't want to be that person. You rather sit with your investors and, like you said, be completely transparent, good, bad and different so they can help you. And a great example of this, uh, I'll use GOAT again. GOAT is now scaling to well over to hundreds of millions of dollars as far as a startup. But let me tell you, they are now today an e-commerce platform for sneakers to be sold. But that's not what they started off being. They were trying to do food delivery. Now, they got money from here out of L.A. through Upfront Capital, Upfront Venture, excuse me, here in L.A., um, and uh, their partner who had made the initial investment in them was looking at them floundering. It's like, this is not going to work, but he had another idea, wanted to take their expertise and say, hey, you guys could go focus on this, this market of what's happening in sneakers. He was able to help them pivot into the right thing and look at them today. Um, but if you're not talking and like working with your investors, they can't help you, you know. And I think that's always the challenge of why I keep saying you have to be humble because you can't get prideful and think you're going to be able to figure it out on your own. Um, you can't, you know, you got to be honest with yourself about what the situation really is that you're, you're dealing with. Um, and when you do that, you're able to really find your way out. Because like I said, a lot of startups, they're, they're they don't die to competition. They usually die to their own self-inflicted wounds. And the only way to get out of that is to, like, literally have people who can help you, whether it's a leadership issue in the organization. You need new people maybe to execute. The idea isn't as good as you thought or the market isn't as strong. Like, there are people who are investors that the wonderful thing about a good investor is that they should be seeing a lot of deal flow. They should be seeing everything that's going on around you. So they're the perfect person to talk to to say, hey, you might want to think about doing this because this is what I'm seeing. So as an example, we talk to all of our investors literally uh, here at Mucker Cat. We talk to them once a week. Um, it's just, and I, I'm not, I, everyone says you should be sending out those emails, updating people. We do that, but I'm, I'm a little bit more than that. I more rather, touch. I rather yeah. more touch. Like I yeah. can send those update emails and say, hey, if you can help me with this, reply. Those are good. Um, but for me, I'd rather sit down and like give them a 20-minute conversation, 15-minute conversation about what's going on so they can give me real-time feedback. Uh, that's proven to do well for us. Uh, All right, let's go back to Theranos as, as, as we finish up. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes is a white woman who the Silicon Valley establishment crowned a genius. Mm-hmm. And she rolled out products related to blood tests. It was exposed as a fraud, including 
uh, I believe, the Department of Justice uh, investigating Theranos for fraud, lying to investors. Do you have a political take on the fact that after she's being investigated for fraud, being exposed for fraud, that there are still prominent investors in Silicon Valley who cape for her, who say that, hey, she's misunderstood and uh, she's still great, where there's some investors uh, still defend her. And, you know, some people in our community, we may say, look, a black woman is never going to be able to get that far doing that much fraud, that much criminality, talking about where... You know, you're getting more investors and more, just a, a, a Ponzi scheme on top of Ponzi scheme of fraud. Uh, and you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars from investors. Do you have a... I'll double down on that and just say that there's also, in the same right, that's a great example. But then there's other ones of where you see frat boy behavior, right? In some of these known uh, entrepreneurs who may have had a certain type of behavior, but yet they still can go start another startup and still get capital. Right. Um, they still can find their way. Uh, but they're, you know, white males. Uh, and you say, well, how come is they can go raise money and they've had a, even a bad track record? And yet I can give you a, a entrepreneur of color who may not be able to raise or to this. You're mentioning uh, Thernos and what she and she's fraud and she can still get support. Um, I think. There is a harsh reality. Go ahead. You I was, I, yeah, I was going to say that. What if I responded by saying, look, all that stuff sounds good, but the way this game is played at a high level, ethics are not going to get in the way of my 50x return or my big return. That I know this. we may say certain stuff, but at the end of the day, if there's a talented entrepreneur that has a gray or I'm not going to say a black spot, a white spot on ethics that it's naive to think that that's going to get away of us making a lot of money because people have a certain view on their ethics or morality. Yeah, I think, you know, the reality is some of these investors look at that behavior and they actually look at it as a positive. Sometimes they look at it as like this He's is more like Zuckerberg. They look at it as a bit. They, they give them. They he, give he's it, a killer. They give it. He's, they, a they, they, he's aggressive. They say they're, they're aggressive. Yeah, they're yeah. innovative. They're, uh, you know, not comfortable with the status quo. They, you know, they they come with these other code words to kind of like say that the behaviors may be okay. Whatever it is, whether it's you know inappropriate behavior, you know, in the workplace with women or whatever it may be, that they give them a pass on these behaviors. And I think a lot of it stems from. When we look at who's making the investments, right, who they look at someone and they kind of can say, I see some of myself in that person is what they do. Right. And they, they give them a pass. Um, but they, they don't see some of themselves in me. I mean, yeah. very few will. But I will say that um, that is a harsh reality of what you're dealing with, because as much as we want to say investment should be very much about analyzing the numbers and looking at the four things that everyone says you should really be focused on, it's it. It's the, the marketplace, you know, the product, does it have traction, and who's the team working on it? That's usually the four things they say you should be 100% making the investments based on. But the reality, that's not really true. A lot of the investments are made off of relationships, 
you know, do they trust that person? And all those things are very subjective. It's not based off of things that when you walk into a room and sit down with an investor, you can even just prove to them in, in, in a 30-minute conversation. No, they usually have, have to already have met you, heard about you, engaged with you. And so it, it tends to lend itself in a place where it's, you know, people who are outside the circle at a disadvantage. Now, there are more and more investors emerging that are trying to be subject, you know, objective, excuse me, uh, with their investing. But it's very, very still very far and few between compared to the ones that are still very subjective. So I say all that to say that it's a harsh reality. I don't have an answer for it because I think, to your point, you bring up Theranos and how some of those investors are still cutting their slack. And, I, and you can't stop them. The only people that can stop them are their LPs, right? They can say, why did you make that investment? This is definitely a risk that you brought to me that I don't understand why you did it. But the LPs are not going to do that if they're still seeing a significant return overall from the fund. They're not looking at the individual investments that the fund is make. They're just looking at the overall return of the fund. So it is, you know, it could be 100 investments made. So the one in Theranos that gets covered up, you know. And so with all that being the case, I just say that the reality is raising capital is difficult, is subjective, is getting better. And the only answer I know to it is for more people of color to get into that side of the house and make investments in people of color uh, or more women getting into this place and making more investments in women. Um, that is a, the long term answer, but it's not a it's not the it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve it overnight. But I think that is truly the resolution that has to happen. Otherwise, we'll still be chasing our tail trying to you can't force anybody to give you money. We're going to finish talking about the number one college basketball in the nation, uh, Zion for Duke. So he recently got hurt. Mm. Yep. And, you know, some people are calling him the next LeBron or the next Kobe, uh, that this guy's game is obviously on, a, on another level. And so college, the industrial college sports complex, of course, they profit massively, billions, off of our players and, and athletes, and they get an education, maybe a couple of years. They risk getting hurt mm -hmm. without kind of a insurance hedge where this guy, if you were to value him, he could be worth, Three hundred million dollars, yeah, easily right now. Yeah, yeah, in terms of future earnings, and that could be valued now. How does the college sports industrial kind of complex reinforce wealth inequality, where you have so many kids and you got so much energy in the black community to get into the professional sports game? And hey, there's a lot of wealth that we're not getting on the college side that we should be getting. And, and, and that kind of reinforces the inequality. And, and then you look at two things I'll add to that is like, look at the brands and how they're profiting from it, right? So, of course, Nike is taking a black eye now because his shoe exploded. But before that, he was wearing all those Nike, he's wearing Nike brand, of course, which is one more free posterized, you know, of course, person wearing their, their, their sneakers, right? Um, I think what's interesting is the person that I think is growing up in this 
more so than ever before. So technology is a big part of this, right? Technology, social media, making everything even much more in front of the consumer. When you look at Mars Reel, which is some brothers who created that startup, and it's all about reporting high school sports. Or there's overtime sports, another one that's reporting high school sports. So you got these, these kids that are getting like professional level coverage in high school, right? And uh, so technology is a big enabler of this new world we live in. And I think LeBron James was probably the first to really explode uh, in this new world. And even he didn't have as much social media coverage as like Zion. He already has over a million followers and he, before he even went into college, Zion. Yeah. And so, and yet he can't get any brand sponsorship. He can't, you know, sell tummy tea <laughs> or anything like that because he can't. It takes away his ineligibility. Uh, to play ball, um, I, I feel like it's a it's a system that's doomed to have to change and evolve because it just has to. Um, I feel like when you look at LeBron, as I was mentioning earlier, he's the one person that is really taking everything back, and people don't like it at all. I mean, you think about who he has as his agent, who he yeah. has as his manager. He went and got all his boys. He put them through school, and now has his own. You you know really entre, you know, enterprise. Platform. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a platform enterprise where yeah. he's got management, he's got everything, he's right? He's helping other and people. people yeah. come up. And so a lot of people are having a problem with that. But I think... You say, you're saying the establishment... The establishment they're, they're is having a problem that, with hey, that. Hey, this guy is the Malcolm X of kind of athletes sports. in terms of he wants to do it a new black majority-owned mm, way. Properly value me way and, and you're saying that the establishment is they hate it they don't like they it. hate it and i believe but but i believe he is that is the answer though what he's doing is the answer you know i think eventually we're gonna have to get into some conversation as far as a country they're gonna change can a college college ball player now i mean a high school ball player skip having to do that one year eligibility the nba is gonna have to keep addressing that it's not gonna go away um i feel like the interesting conversation, though, is that there are a large majority of collegiate sports athletes like myself who benefited from having a scholarship and going through college. So there is a benefit to some of us. But those who are like this extraordinary talents, like Zions of the world, it's, it's totally a disservice to them because they cannot go and truly monetize their brand, their worth, their value coming right out of high school. And he should have been afforded that. And any other sport you can, tennis you can, golf you can. Uh, you know, these all the country club sports, right? You can do it. So why are we not allowing it in football and basketball? You know, the Republicans and these people say, you say you love a free market. You know, you, you say you love, hey, the value needs to be, proper value needs to be a, a, assigned to free market yep. assets. Yep. If you were to go back the last 30 years and we were to say that, okay, we're going to come up with an estimate that if the NCAA had to pay the market rate, the market value of for these players, and, you know, they're taking in the advertising and, you know, Nike and all these people pimping the black athletes. If we were to go back and say, hey, you have to pay full price for that value. You have to share that wealth that's being created on their backs, how many billions do you think we're talking over the last 30 years if, if market forces had to pay the proper value 
for what they're getting. Yeah, I, I don't even have a context on that, honestly, because it's, like, it's, it's, it's so massive. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's you're ma- talking about something over, easily over 250 when, billion. How long has Jordan been out of league? Are we going back to when, when, when did he retired? We're going, uh, Which, Jordan? Yeah, it was, because you didn't count. If you're counting from his period of time until yeah. today. Yeah, I am. Man, it's, it's, it's massive. Because even when Jordan, even though Jordan wasn't where – like where LeBron was in a way of, you know, branding. But Jordan, even way back then, was super, uh, you know, sought-after athlete. Yeah. And people, and, and he got the Nike contract his first year in the league. So you knew that meant he was about to blow up before then. There's tons and tons and tons. Of, like a Deion Sanders. Think about Deion Sanders in college when he yeah. was Florida State. He was a marketing machine. There's tons and tons of athletes across all those sports that tells me that could easily be in the trillions of dollars. I love that answer in terms of putting it in the trillions. If America was to ever give black America reparations and people are talking about a couple trillion, the black athletes alone over the last 30 years, you could be talking about a, 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 a trillion dollars. And the proper way to value our athleticism and the profit that's made on the back of the athletes, you got to start looking at the share prices of CBS. Nike. You got you got to look at the share prices of Nike, share prices of Fox. Oh, Fox, you can go. Yeah. You can look at all these brands. Chick Fil A that does all the bowls. You can look yeah. at Dr Pepper that does all the bowl games. And and so think about like when you bring this up at that span of time. Think about the Fab Five when Jalen Rose and all those boys win all them the black Nike sneakers and socks. They're bringing in new fans into the game. They, They're cool. And they were, like, it wasn't just, like, you could say, oh, it was just apparel. It wasn't just the apparel. It became a whole fashion statement that led to uh, what a lot of brands did. It wasn't just Nike. And, and you start to say to yourself, like, man, like, you can't even, it's really, it really gets to a point where it's hard to even calculate the influence. And so that goes once again, and I'll say this, about black and brown influence in America. When you think about, Sean alluded to it earlier, you know, the number one genre of music in America and now across the world is hip hop, R&B. You look at uh, what's happening in film. You look at like Crazy Rich Asians or Black Panther and what those films have been able to do massively. Um, You look at fashion, Virgil Abloh on his own is completely flipping what's happening in fashion, right? He went to the fashion house, Louis Vuitton, and look at what they've done now. They've taken and adopted everything street culture, street fashion, right? And so you see the influence, and then you also see it in technology. You look at gaming, Fortnite. What has Fortnite done to appropriate all the dances and the songs and put it into technology, and they're monetizing and profiting from it? So... I think this influence you're talking about, you're yeah. talking about college sports, but yeah. I can argue it's happening everywhere. <laughs> Every, you're about, hey, everything dude, around we're us. Pimped everywhere. everywhere, bro. <laughs> I mean, so the only way I know to change it is yeah. for us to make stuff for us by us. I mean, that's really the true answer to a lot of this. And does that tie into your answer before where you're saying, hey, we have to do the majority on our side? Versus looking to Zuckerberg or Google or, you know, Salesforce to bring us along, to save us. We need to beg the big tech companies to save us. Are you, are you thinking with this sports issue, 
it's on us to change it. Man, we got the value. Listen, in every relationship I look at, it's like, what's the incentive for someone to act a different way, right? You go into a relationship with anyone and you sit there and you're working together. Like, they have to have an incentive to do things. So what is the incentive of, I don't know, name whatever Fortune 500 company to change their behavior towards a group of people unless that group of people changes what they will do in the other, from the other side of it? So like this whole fashion, you know, brouhaha that's going on, Prada and who else? Uh, uh, Gucci, they did these blackface things. Unless we stop making it hot, they're not going to care. Yeah. Now, the moment we stop making it hot, now they're worried, right? They're like, no, we can't lose that influence and that consumer base because they're dictating hardline numbers and sales. I mean, this goes back to the civil rights movement. We had to do the, the sit-ins, the, the boycotting. This hasn't really changed, and it doesn't necessarily mean a boycott. That's the thing I, I feel like sometimes people – get so like all spun up on social media talking about boycotts it's to me it's not a boycott it should be like anything else like when you want to be a healthy person you're going to eat a certain way not just one day every day right if you want to have a healthy lifestyle consumerization should be the same thing if we're looking at like we want to see more people respect us as a consumer or you know and see the kind of things we want then we have to dictate that i don't expect anyone to do that for me let me give you an example of what i think you're saying you're saying that it's on Kobe or possibly Zion or LeBron to come and say, "Look, you're providing me with the salary or whatever, but ten of the hottest players, black players in the NBA, saying, "Look, these franchises they have grown in value and they're worth billions of dollars. We're gonna need." stock and equity in the franchise like you got at Apple and like all these people, the employees and executives coming up at Silicon Valley with shares and options, we're going to need something beyond salary to properly value what we bring to the table. I want to own a percentage. Only problem with that, right, is the NBA, NFL will argue that they're private entities, not going to give up the equity. You know, it's a little bit a little different because they're not publicly traded. Yeah, yeah. But to your point, though, I do feel like the NBA is better about this than the NFL as far as what their players have been able to negotiate and get for themselves. If 10 of the hottest players were saying, if they were committed and they said, hey, look, we're not going for it with the old way, that you guys are going to have to start offering some type of equity. And if, you know, I'm going to play for the team for five, six years, I want, if the value of the franchise goes up and I help create that, I want a piece of the ownership. You don't think that... I think they could definitely ask for it, try to get together, get the players association. It's not enough leverage. But see, the problem is it's not enough leverage for a couple of reasons. One is it happens anytime you have lockouts. You know, we've had these things happen in NFL. You still wind up seeing replacement players emerge, right, to still want to play because they're happy to get a check even though they're not as good as the other players. And I feel like that that's, to me, it starts, yes, I would put on an athlete to kind of ask and demand for more, but I really think, like I said, to me, it's a bigger conversation. The entire community needs to be dictating and asking for more when it comes to any product, whether it's right now we're talking about sports and that's entertainment, but I don't think of it any different than the water we're drinking or whatever we want. Like we have to dictate what we were willing to accept as a people. And until we are able to, 
come together like that, your influence and leverage is is limited. And then we've done it. That's the thing, though. I, I want to make sure I'm always positive. Like I've seen instances where we have come together and we have said, this is not going to work for us. And when we do that, things change. And I think that's just what has to happen. I want to thank uh, Cedric Rogers for coming on the show. Where could people find you online and learn more information uh, about cultural genesis? Yeah, for, for me, it's easy to find me. Um, my name is uh, Cedric, C-E-D-R-I-C-J Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S. And so if you put that in on all the Twitter, uh, all, your, all the handles, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that other good stuff, you'll find me. Um, and uh, when it comes to Culture Genesis, um, we are at Culture Genesis as well um, across all feeds. We have actually had a great opportunity to get a lot of press lately. So things are going well. Uh, you can find us and learn more about us. And we ask that you support our first product, Trivia Mob. It's a live game show. It's every Sunday night. You know, you can come win some cash. Um, we got some cool things that we're doing there. And you have so. to download the app. Yes. The app. Yes, definitely download the app on the App Store. Uh, Android is coming in the next few weeks. So things are going really well for us. And we're giving away money. I mean, who wants to win money? It's 15 minutes to win some cash. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was great. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.